And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Compromise can be a good thing in certain situations. Compromise, perhaps if you're in business and you have a business partner and you have different ideas about what needs to be done, sometimes you might need to be uh, willing to compromise. In marriage, it is very important to compromise. There are times in which you both have certain desires. You want to do this. Somebody, your, your spouse wants to do that. And you've got to learn. If you're going to have a successful marriage, if you're going to have a good and a healthy marriage, you're going to have to be willing and learn to compromise. Compromise can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. In fact, it can be a deadly thing. It can even be catastrophic. Think about compromising in other ways. Sometimes we talk about uh, people who have certain uh, diseases or illnesses and uh, they might, the doctor might say they have a compromised immune system. Compromise is good in your marriage. If your immune system is compromised, that's, that's not a good thing. It means you have an immunodeficiency. Your, your body's not able to fight off infectious disease and, and illness like it might usually do. And that can lead you to be chronically sick and, and even perhaps it can be deadly. Lately, there's been a lot in the news about people hacking into uh, computer servers and getting information. Those, those servers have been compromised. Compromise is a, a bad thing. If you have a, an inspector that comes into your home and they look at the home and they look through the foundation, they, they say your, your foundation is compromised. There's a crack or there's some problem with, with the foundation. That's not a good thing. It can be catastrophic. In 2011, I remember uh, we lived in Louisville and uh, we, we lived in, in the west side of Louisville and there's the bridge on 64 that goes right from the west end of Louisville over into Indiana. And I drove over that bridge every day. And uh, one day they came on the news and said they were doing a routine inspection and some of the steel beams that undergird and hold up that bridge were compromised. The steel was compromised. There was a crack or some problem there. And they didn't wait. They, they shut it down immediately because you don't want to drive over a compromised bridge. Compromise can be good in your marriage, but there are certain ways and certain situations where compromise is bad. It can be dangerous, devastating, and even deadly. In this letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus is saying there are some good things that you've done 
And there are some things I want to commend you for, but there's a problem in the church at Pergamum. You are compromising. You're compromised. And he's calling them to repentance. And he's calling us this morning, Union Baptist Church. I think this is a word for us. There are some ways in which I think if the Lord was speaking to us this morning, he would be encouraged. He would encourage us about some things that we're doing. But I have no doubt that one of the things that he might say to us is we're compromising. We're compromised. And we need to repent. Pergamum. Uh, was the city that this church was located in. You can see a picture there. This is a, a replica of what the city would have looked like. One uh, ancient uh, Roman senator said of Pergamum that it was the most distinguished city in Asia. Pergamum served as the capital for the Roman Empire in the east. Obviously, the city of Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. But in the east, Pergamum was their, their headquarters, their Capital. We saw last week that Smyrna was known for its patriotism and its strong support of, of Rome and how enthusiastic they were. But, but Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. It was, it was the capital city uh, for uh, the, the, the empire of Rome and for the, the worship of the emperor that would have accompanied that. Leon Morris cites in his commentary on this that the fact that there was been an inscription found that said that Pergamum was the center of the emperor cult for the whole province. Uh, Pergamum was, uh, the, the name itself means citadel, and it gets that name from the fact that it's, it, it is located on a mountain. You know, you've got in this region a lot of flat land, plains. Uh, but, but Pergamum itself, this city was located on a mountain a thousand feet tall. And in fact, what we see here, this replica, is what they would call the Acropolis. That's not just a restaurant in, in Evansville. That is great. First time that's ever happened. Does anybody want to grab some towels there? Seth? Run and get some paper towels. There we go. Daniel's got it. All right. That's really smooth, isn't it? All right. Uh, so so uh, uh, the Acropolis was this part of the city. Acropolis means a, a high place, and it was the highest place in, in the city. And that's what this is a replica of, uh, is that uh, Acropolis. It was sat atop of this, uh, of this mountain which stood a, a thousand feet tall. One person said about this that it was the most spectacular aspect of the city. It's the most remarkable part was this upper terrace of the city with its sacred royal buildings in this area this acropolis part of the city there was a library the the second greatest library in the ancient world it had over 200,000 volumes in this library there would have been a garrison for roman soldiers there were all kinds of temples to their various deities in this section of uh of the city and also a palace for the king. Pergamum was the home of several well-known deities in this time. They lived in the Roman Empire, paganism. There were all kinds of gods that they worshipped. And Pergamum was the center of the home for some of these important gods in that time. As we've already mentioned, it was the, it was the center for uh, the, the cult of emperor worship. That was the, the main thing. There was a, a temple there. Uh, in fact, this city was the first city that was given the rights to build a, a temple to a living uh, emperor, to Caesar Augustus. And uh, so there was that. Later on, there were two, two more temples to various uh, emperors, one to Trajan and one to Severus. 
uh, later on. Uh, perhaps one of the, the most important or one of... Thank you. Here you go. There we go. The quilted quicker picker upper, right? All right. Yeah. No, they're good. That's probably the first and hopefully the last time that ever happens. So, all right. Uh, let's see where we are now. Uh, they, they, they were known that probably the, the most unique feature, let me say this, the most unique feature of the city was that it was uh, the home of a well-known temple uh, to Zeus. Many of us have heard the, of the god Zeus, uh, and uh, we see a picture of it there. This is actually uh, in a museum in Berlin, Berlin called the Pergamum. It's 100 feet wide, 30 feet, 35 feet tall. Uh, this was an altar to, to the god Zeus. And this stood atop of that terrace, that upper terrace. And so you can just imagine coming into this city. Everything's flat around it, kind of barren land. And then you have this mountain jutting up. And you have at the top of this mountain uh, a, a, an altar like this with all these buildings, this great library and uh, the garrison for the soldiers. But, but you have this temple here. You'd be able to see this for miles and miles around. And we saw here uh, that Jesus says, uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And some, some commentators have speculated that it's because of this temple, which if you're coming into the city and you can see this up on the hill might have looked like a throne. And perhaps that's what Jesus was referring to. Pergamum was also the home of of the god Asclepius, which was the god of health. In fact, there was a temple to Asclepius there. Uh, here's a picture. And uh, you can see he's got a staff with a, a snake around it. And if you know, Crystal came in this morning to take pictures. She worked last night. She had her, she had her sweatshirt on from work. And uh, there, there was on there the, the healthcare symbol, right? That's got the snakes coming up around the rod. That's where that, that image comes from. You can see it there. Uh, it comes from this Greek mythology and this god Asclepius. And it's been carried over so many things in our culture. Some of, the, uh, some of those things have, have carried over. Uh, and so this god was centered there. There was a temple where people would come from miles and miles around all over the world to come to this temple. Some have suggested some of the practices that would take place there. Uh, one said that, that uh, you would enter into this temple, they'd give you some type of sedative, and you would lay down on the floor in this temple, and there were snakes crawling around, and there was supposedly some kind of healing power, and these snakes would crawl over you while you're asleep. And I said, I just die. I, I would just die. I, I don't want to be healed. No, thank you. I'm, I'm not going to take part of that. But this was one of the practices there. There were also temples to Athena and Dionysus. Uh, this was a, a, a city where this pagan culture was just ingrained in them. And sometimes we can think, well, how silly, this Greek mythology, how childish. Of course, we've moved on past that. But Al Mohler, uh, I thought, made an astute observation. These gods, it wasn't just about the gods themselves and sort of the pagan practices. It's about what they represent. That's what these people were seeking. And so these gods represent power and sex and health and intellect. Now, we might not have all the pagan practices that they were wrapped up in, but aren't those the very things in our culture that people are pursuing? And so there is a connection here. Paganism was ingrained in this city. To, to be from Pergamum was to be 
a part of all of these gods and to worship them. To, to be from Pergamum was to be a person who worshipped Zeus and who went to the altar of Zeus and offered sacrifices. This is part of what it meant to be from Pergamum. In some cases, then, if you were a Christian, it meant that not that you just took Jesus and you added him to your life as a citizen in Pergamum. It meant when you said, I'm going to follow Christ, it meant that you pulled back from all of this stuff that was ingrained in your culture. It meant that you became different, that you stood out, that you weren't a person who went to these altars and went to these temples and participated in these things. You would have stood out in some cases. This meant that that you would experience persecution. Some of that would just be uh, cultural kind of persecution. You know, you stand out. You're weird. People don't understand why you're not doing that. You don't fit in you're marginalized from the culture and that's the easiest of it because sometimes some of the persecution came in the form of governmental persecution which meant that if you're not willing to say that Caesar is Lord and offer sacrifices to Caesar then you would be persecuted by the government and and in fact we see here that there was one who had even been martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ it was no doubt as a result of his unwillingness to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. And so the first thing that we see here this morning as we enter into this letter and just walk through it, we see the commendation, the commendation for their faithfulness. Jesus says to them in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. They were standing strong. In a, in a city where the, the center of satanic activity is going on, Jesus is saying to this church, I know where you're at. I know where you live. I know what's going on in the culture. I know what it's costing you to follow me. And you have been faithful. We see here that he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. There's, there's several possibilities. We've already seen that one possibility was the fact that this temple to Zeus was there. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. Or perhaps this, this serpent with the God Asclepius. Maybe, you, you know, you go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis, and Satan came to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. Some have suggested that. But perhaps really, the, I think what it's getting at is because this was the center of the Roman Empire in the East. This was the center of the emperor cult. And I believe that this is what uh, God is, is saying to them, what Christ is saying to them. I know where you are. I know that you're in the center of the Roman Empire where you are expected to worship Caesar as Lord and you're being faithful. And he commends them for their faithfulness. Notice what, he, what we see here is that uh, Jesus doesn't see just what, what we see. Sometimes we think we go through persecution or in this instance where, where people are, are, are opposing us. And Jesus says there's something deeper going on here. The book of Ephesians tells us, right, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let's just read that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
We don't just wrestle. Our struggle is not just a struggle with people. Do you understand that? There's something more going on. If we could roll back the curtains of the spiritual realm, we could see that Satan is at work attacking God's people. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I know where you're at. Satan is attacking you. Satan is coming against you. And in fact, you're living in the very center of Satan's activity. And so I know that, Jesus says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so Jesus is saying to them, I know where you're at. The evidence of this was most evident in this one Antipas who had been a martyr. He says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. You're right in the center of Satan's activity. You are in the bullseye of what he is attacking and you have been faithful. Even when Antipas was laying down his life, you remained faithful. You didn't deny my name. You held strong even in that moment. You were faithful. We think about this, sometimes people refer and talk back to uh, the, the Roman Empire and they, they talk about martyrdom and they say, you Christians always overblow this idea of martyrdom. There, weren't, there wasn't widespread persecution in, in martyrdom. But just let me ask you, how many people would have to be martyred in Hancock County for us to get the sense that, that we're being persecuted? I would say probably just one is all that it would take. It wouldn't have to be widespread. If you knew somebody, if you knew that uh, Jared's not here this week and, and I got up here and told you the reason Jared's not here this week, he was sharing his faith at work and uh, they didn't like it. They called the authorities and they took him out and they, they put him to death because they had warned him not to share his faith. How would that rock our, our church? How would that, that the ripples of that would spread out not just only from our church, but to our community, even to, to our state, to this region, this part of the world? That, that, would, that would last, it wouldn't just last a year or two. We, we would take a long time before we felt comfortable again. And, and that's what's going on. There, there's a person who has so faithfully followed Christ, he was even willing to give up his life. And Jesus says, I know where you're at. And I know that you've been faithful even in the midst of them. Notice here that Jesus does a couple things. He says, I know, I know. We, we saw last week that Jesus is sympathizing with them. I know what you're going through. I know that you're faithfully following me. I sympathize. Jesus has, has been here. He, Jesus has been the center of the attacks of Satan. For 33 years, he lived as, as the prime target of Satan's attack. And so he says to them, I know what you're going through. If you're here this morning and you're, 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 you're finding it difficult to be a Christian in our culture and, and, and to experience some of the ways in which we're ostracized and marginalized as Christians who are faithful to God's Word, Jesus says this morning, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you are experience, experiencing. He sympathizes with them, but He also commends them because you hold fast My name. Despite everything, they had not abandoned their faith. But what we see is that when Satan comes against you, and we've mentioned this, when Satan cannot defeat you by force, he will often seek to, to come another way 
and to attack you. And that's what he's done. If, if he can't get you by force, he will seek to bring about compromise or to defeat your faith or spoil your faith in some other way. And that's what's going on in this church. They had, they had withstood the frontal attack of Satan. The persecution had come and they remained faithful. And yet they were beginning to compromise now. So look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. What, what a remarkable thing. Again, just to notice. Uh, we, we, we've talked about this in some of the other ones. So, so if that was said of a church, wow, they were faithful and didn't deny Christ even when they were persecuted, we'd be like, that's an awesome church. That, that's great. What, what, a, what a great testimony that they so loved Christ, that they were so devoted and loyal to Christ that they wouldn't, they wouldn't renounce Christianity even in the face of persecution, even when they knew somebody who had been put to death because of their faith. They didn't, they didn't waver. How, how awesome. And yet, despite all the, the fact that they've got so much right here, Jesus says, I've still got something against you. There's, there's a problem here. You know, I have something... Uh, a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, he says, repent. Well, what is this? What is he talking about? I think what we're seeing here in this church in the church at Pergamum, we're seeing the beginning of compromise. They have stood strong for a very long time and they have faced the persecution and they've been faithful through all that, but they are in the beginning phases of compromising with the world. They were willing to tell Caesar no. They were willing to be persecuted, but now it's the, the soft temptation of just fitting in with the world. And beginning to compromise. That's what's going on here. He references here the story of Balaam. Uh, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament as the children of Israel came out of Egypt and then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, you remember the king of Moab wanted to defeat Israel. He didn't want Israel coming in and taking over this land. And he, he wants to put an end to them. He wants to defeat them and run them out of this land. The, the king of Moab, uh, Balak. And so he hires this worthless prophet, this false prophet Balaam to come. And he says, look, I'll give you I'll give you a lot of money if you will come and will pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. And so Balaam says, OK, I'll, I'll do this. The Lord appears to him, says, don't don't do it. But then Balaam moves on and goes ahead and and does this. But as he goes up. He tells Balak, I can only say what the Lord allows me to say. So he goes up on the mountain to pronounce this curse on Israel. And he begins to speak. And it's a blessing instead of a curse. And he said, I told you, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. I'm a prophet and only what God. So Balak's upset and he says, okay, do it, do it again. Let's go to this other place and overlook the children of Israel. And, and you'll pronounce a curse on them there. And he does it again. Same thing. He begins to, to go to curse them. And a blessing comes out of his mouth. He blesses the children of Israel instead of curses. Four times, there are four oracles in the book of, uh, of Numbers where, where Balaam does this. But we find out later though, as Balak obviously is upset, he's, he, wants, he wants this 
uh, wants Israel defeated and wants a, a curse to be placed on them. And so he's upset. And we find out later on in the book of Numbers that Balak had said, look, I can't pronounce a curse, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can go to the children of Israel and take your Moabite women and you can allure them and entice them and intermarry with them and then introduce to them your gods. Allow them to begin to worship your gods. And when you do that, God's wrath will be turned against them and God will come in judgment on them. I can't pronounce a curse, but if you do that, you will be able to defeat the Israelites. So he taught this king to teach the people to compromise. Just like we're seeing here. He, he wasn't able to defeat them by force. So he went to the king and said, this is what you do. Teach them to compromise. And in so doing, them, doing that, that, that will be their downfall. So Jesus is drawing on that as he writes to the church at Pergamum. There were not actually people here who were teaching uh, you know, that knew about Balaam and, and Balak and were, were thinking about that. But he's drawing this analogy that, that this, this practice goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And he says, so, so you have some people also, verse 15, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this was the actual teaching that was in the church. They were known as the Nicolaitans. This were, these were the people who said, you can follow Jesus. On Sunday, you can come to worship and you can raise your hands and you can praise Jesus and you can listen to the preaching and then you can go out and you can still be involved in all the paganism that you see around here. You can continue to go to the altar of Zeus. You don't have to stop going to the altar of Zeus. You can continue to go to the healing temple of Asclepius. You can continue to worship Dionysus. You can continue to practice in all of these things and still follow Christ. You can compromise. You, you can have your foot in the world and in the church. You can be divided. And Jesus is saying, look, I know that you church, you have been faithful, but this is the problem. You have some people here who think it's okay to live in the world and practice this paganism and be in the church. In other words, Christ is saying to this church, you have a group of people in your congregation who hold the belief that they can maintain their status in the world and they can continue their pagan practices and then show up on Sunday and worship Jesus. There was compromise by some in the church. They were compromising their faith with worldly pagan practices. They were doing the same thing that Balaam taught this Moabite king to do. Tell them to introduce them to these other gods and to intermarry and to mix and to compromise with the Moabite women. And in doing so, they will draw the judgment of God. They were compromising since the very early days of the church. Listen, this morning, since the very earliest days of the church, there have been those who have thought that you could be a Christian and follow Christ and maintain this status in the world and continue to live in the world. You can continue to do all of the things that the world does. Practicing sex, sexual immorality, continuing to practice drunkenness, continuing to live in sin. You can continue to do all of those things and go to church on Sunday and you'll be a Christian and everything will be all right. And Jesus is saying that's not, that's not right, right? We even have country songs about that, right? 
going out and partying on Saturday night and going to church on Sunday. It's part of the Bible Belt. It's part of Southern culture. And it's been here since since the time of the New Testament with the Nicolaitans, but it actually is a lie of Satan that goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel where, where, where Satan is getting people to believe that you can compromise your faith. You can be part of the people of God and be part of the world. And it's not true. It's lies. It's a lie from Satan. You can imagine the pool of these pagan practices and being involved in the world. Sometimes it's easy to read the New Testament and think, well, that was dumb. Why didn't they just stop worshiping? It's because it was ingrained in their culture. This is who they were. But why is it so difficult for us? It's because it's ingrained in our culture. We want to continue to have a normal life. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't mind going to church on Sunday. But we want to still continue to practice all the other things that go along with our culture and, and our world. We don't want Jesus to change our lives on Monday to Saturday. Are you compromising with the world this morning? The gods of power and sex and health and intellect. Are they beginning to pull you in? Let me ask you two questions in particular that I think probably would nail everybody in here, myself included. Because there are certain ways that we compromise, aren't there? Let me just ask you this morning, how are you doing in fighting against sexual sin? That's one of the big things in in our culture. Are you fighting against those sins? Are you you living for the Lord in those areas? Are, Are you committing fornication or adultery? Are you looking at pornography? These kinds of things. These are compromises that we make with the world. And Jesus is saying, church, I have this against you. You have some people that think it's all right to practice sexual immorality and, and go on about their lives as if everything's okay and then show up at church on Sunday. That's a problem. It's not right. And Jesus is calling them to repentance. He's saying, get this straight. You can't be part of the people of God and then live in this way the other days of the week. How about this? A second area that I think many of us might struggle with. How are you doing? Are you compromising when it comes to materialism? Are you living for things? Is that, what's, is that what is driving you? Cars and boats? I, I, know, I probably say this a hundred times. I want to keep saying it because it's the sin of our day. In the West, and in America, we're so wealthy. and We live for these things. Are we compromising with the world so that we might have this stuff? Are we allowing our faith to be compromised so that we might have a bigger house and a nicer car and all of these things? These are areas in which we compromise. And there are, there are dozens and dozens more of them that we could point out. But I think those are the two that, that are big. I think we forget what Jesus said, right? No man can serve two masters. You can't can't do these things and live this way and then follow Christ, right? Either He's your master and you're living for Him or you're living in the world. One or the other. One, One or the other. You can't have your foot in the world and in the church. We forget what John wrote When he was in Ephesus in 1 John, he wrote, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But notice here, what is actually the problem with this church? 
Look at verses 14 and 15 again. What we find in these verses, that I think I'll point out, it's, it's not really directed, I don't think, at the people who are compromising with the world. It's directed with the faithful church who's not handling and not dealing with the problem of compromising people in the church. Notice, you'll see what I'm saying here. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. But I have a few things against you, against these people who are faithful, who have not denied Christ, who continue to hold the faith. He says, you have some. You church, this this faithful church that has withstood persecution. He says, you have some there who hold this teaching. You have some people in your membership roles who are trying to show up and continue to maintain their membership in the church and come to church from time to time and and act as if they are Christians, act as if they're following me. You have some of the people that are doing this and then are, are living in the world. He's directing this to the church. You see, these individuals were compromising, but the problem that he's addressing is the fact that the church is compromising by allowing these people to stay in the membership of the church. He's saying you need to do something about these people who are worldly, who are trying to live in the world and then be in the church. You all have been faithful. You haven't denied my name. You were willing to be persecuted even in the days of Antipas, but you're allowing worldly people in the church. And that's a problem. You have some who hold this teaching. They're practicing sexual immorality and and continuing to worship and serve these uh, idols. He says, look at verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This same principle, the idea of compromising and mixing with the world. Therefore, repent. So Jesus, in this letter, the aim and the, the main thrust of this, church, this letter is to write to the Pergamum church and say, listen, church, you need to get this right. You all think you're being loving by not addressing sin in the church. You're not being loving. You, you need to repent of this. You need to not allow p- people to continue in the church. I'm not, com- I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm talking about people... We continue to affirm their Christianity by allowing them to stay in the membership of the church when they're off living in the world. He's saying you're doing that. And you, church, need to repent. You need to take care of this problem. The problem that he's addressing is that the church is compromising by not practicing discipline, not calling people out of sin, by allowing people to stay in the pews and tell them, brother, sister, everything's good. It's good to see you. Everything's great. Knowing full well that when they leave there, they're going back into their pagan practices. They're going back into the world. And he's saying, you're allowing that. You're not addressing the problem. They're allowing worldly people to continue in the church and not confronting their sin. The Bible is clear. Listen to me. The Bible is clear about the church's responsibility to lovingly confront sin. Do you know that's your responsibility? Church, that's our responsibility to lovingly, humbly, graciously confront sin when it's obvious, when it's out there, when, it, when it's in front of our face. We are called to do this. Jesus Himself 
said in Matthew 18, if someone is in sin, go to them between you and him. Don't make it public. Don't gossip about it. Don't spread it around the church. But if you know someone is in sin, go to them between you and them and tell them about their sin. Call them to repentance. And the goal, Jesus says, is that you might gain your brother. That you might gain your brother. Go to them and confront them and call them to faithfulness. This isn't just the job. Jesus doesn't say, hey, pastors, you go do this. He calls everyone who's a part of the church to confront sin in the church. We don't confront sin in the world. That's not our job. you got people at work that are having affairs and going out and getting drunk. They're not part of the church. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that's not our responsibility. We don't judge the world. But he says in 1 Corinthians, when you have a brother, when you have someone who's in the church, someone who bears the name of Christ and they're living in the world, it's your responsibility to confront that sin. Again, lovingly, humbly, graciously, recognizing you're a sinner too. But it's your responsibility to go to them. Look, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Corinthian church, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Because if you weren't able to associate with those kinds of people, he says, you would have to go out of the world, right? You'd have to start a colony on the moon. And that's not what he's calling us to do. I'm not calling you to be Amish and to to build your little compounds and stay out away from the world. That's not what we're called to do. That's not our responsibility to God will judge the world. God will judge people in sexual immorality who are in the world and he will take care of that problem. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, anyone who claims to be a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, people who are outside of the church, people in the world? That's not our responsibility, he's saying. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here is a call to practice church discipline. And it's what we're called to do. It's what Pergamum was not doing. They were faithful. They had stood faithful. They had had undergone persecution and not denied the name of Christ. But he's saying, look, you're beginning to allow people into your church who are practicing worldliness. They're living in sin and you're not confronting them. You're not calling them to repentance. And that's a problem because you're allowing in your church the seeds of its own destruction. If you continue to allow people to, to live in this way, the church will die. We see then the command to repent. The command to repent. Well, what does, the, what does repentance look like for this church in Pergamum? Well, first of all, for those who are compromising, the, the individuals themselves, they are called to repent of that. They need to stop buying into this age-old lie that I can live in the world unchanged. My life can continue to practice. I can continue to practice all these things and then still be a Christian You need to repent of that. If you're here this morning and that is the way that you view things, you need to repent of that this morning. You need to turn away from worldly practices and begin to follow Christ with your whole heart. 
Jesus doesn't allow, he doesn't allow this divided loyalty where we're in the world and, and in the church. He, he, wants, he wants us to serve Him alone and worship Him alone and follow Him alone. And so if you're here this morning and that's been your practice, that's what you've grown up in the Bible Belt in Southern Baptist churches who have told you you're on the membership roll. You asked Jesus in your heart in vacation Bible school when you were eight years old and everything's okay. You can go out and continue to live in the world. That's a lie from Satan that goes all the way back to the beginning of the people of Israel. And it was in New Testament times and it's been throughout church history from day one till today. And if that's the way that you think about it, you need to repent. He says, repent. Turn away from that thinking. Turn away from that ideology and turn to Christ. Follow Him. Give Him your whole heart and your whole life. If you're a member of this church, this morning, if you're a member of this church, that means we're affirming that you're a brother or sister in Christ and you're unwilling. We would plead with you. I would pray that you would be willing to, to turn away from this. But if you're unwilling to stop compromising with the world, that is you're unwilling to, to stop practicing sexual immorality or to stop practicing drunkenness or to stop living for the world, you cannot be a part of God's people. You cannot be a part of God's people. That's the word of Christ this morning. That's the word of God. And, and you need to hear that. You need to be called to repentance. Whoever says, John says in verse John, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's the word of God, if you're living for the world while you're claiming to be a Christian, John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says you are a liar and the truth is not in you. I'm not talking this morning about every one of us here struggles with sin and we fall, but, but we're following the Lord. I'm not talking about the battle or the struggle for, with sin that we all have. I'm talking about people who are persistently living in a lifestyle of worldliness. That's what he's addressing here. You can just live it up in this world and then show up at church and call yourself a Christian and everything's okay. No, this is saying here, you cannot be a part of the world and a part of Christ's church. As a church then, if we're called to repentance, that, that's the individuals. But as a church, if we're called to repent, then what do we, how do we repent? Maybe you're not mixing with the world. Maybe you're walking faithfully with the Lord. Well, for this, for, for us, for the church, it is a call to practice discipline. To lovingly, humbly, and I mean humbly, confronting worldliness and sin in the church. Jesus said, you have some who hold this and you're not doing anything about it. You're not taking care of this problem. You're not confronting their sin. You're allowing them to continue to think everything's okay. So for us as a church, then we need to recognize if we're called to repentance, that that repentance involves us beginning to address sin in the church, confronting it, inviting, pleading with people, 
humbly. Not, not as people who have everything together, but turn away from the world. Come to Christ. Follow Christ. We want you as a part of the church. We, we want you to be saved. We, we want you to follow Christ. We, this is Church discipline is not get away. Church discipline is not, we don't want you in here. Church discipline is a plea. Please turn from your sin. Please turn from the world because you cannot follow the world and follow Christ. So, so that's what we need to do, church. We need to begin to practice this humble pleading with and confronting with those who are living lives of worldliness. We notice a collective identity here. They're responsible for... We, we in the West, we have this individualism. It's just me. Well, I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm living for the Lord. I, I'm, I don't have this sin, so these people aren't my responsibility. But in the church, there's this collective identity. We are responsible for each other. And you have the responsibility to confront sin when it's evident. A sermon like this hits against our, our cultural sensitivities, doesn't it? A, a, a sermon like this... In our day, in our time, in our culture is a hard sermon to hear. And, and what's the one thing that we say? Well, that's not very loving, is it? Is it really loving to confront people about their sins? Well, let me just ask you a question. First of all, this is, these are the words of Jesus. Matthew 18, go and show your brother his fault. That, those are the words of Jesus. So let me ask you, let me get this straight, right? You're saying that you're more loving than Jesus. When you say that Jesus told you to do this, he told you to confront sin and address problems in the church. But you're saying I'm too loving to do that. That would make you more loving than Jesus. I think we all see the foolishness of that. And then as we just think about this, is it really loving to continue to allow somebody to walk in sin? Notice what what he says here. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, against these people who are living worldly, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So you're telling me it's, it's the loving thing to do. It's the gracious thing to do. It's the kind thing to do to let somebody to continue to walk in this path that when Jesus says, I'm going to come to them soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This, this imagery from this apocalyptic book. I've got a sword coming from my mouth and I'm going to war against these people who are saying they're, they're my followers. They're saying they're part of the people of God. They're saying they're living for me. And yet they're living in the world and continuing to practice their paganism. It's the loving thing to do to allow them to continue to feel okay about that when Jesus says judgment's coming. Well, it's not the loving thing at all. It's like a doctor saying, you know, I just really didn't want to hurt that person's feeling. They have terminal cancer, but I just didn't want to tell them because I just don't think it's very loving to tell them about the bad thing that's going happen that's not the loving thing to do and it's not the loving thing to do to shake a brother or sister's hand and to act like everything's okay when you know they're in sin and the judgment of Christ is going to come on them it's not the loving thing to do the it, it might be the loving thing to do because you love yourself because you don't want to imposition yourself you you don't want people to not like you but it's not the loving thing for them they need to hear if you continue to walk in this way the judgment of God is coming and you need to repent you need to 
turn away from this. I, I love you and I'm not perfect either. I, I have sinned. But, but if you continue to practice as your lifestyle, this worldliness and this worldly lifestyle, the judgment of Christ is coming. It's not the loving thing to do at all. In fact, we see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that the loving thing to do is actually to address sin in the church. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone, so he's talking to brothers, Christians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and we're not talking about the, the, the trials, the, the, the struggle that we have with, with sin, but we're talking about somebody who's caught in a transgression. This has become their practice, the way that they live. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That involves you going to them, addressing this and saying, look, you need to begin walking with the Lord. You've been caught up. You've got in a trap. Satan tempted you. You're in this sin and you're continuing to walk in this sin. You need to come back. You need to come back into the church. You need to come back to the Lord and begin to walk with Him. You who are spiritual should restore Him in a spirit of gentleness. And then notice what he says. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Just remember, as you're addressing sin and confronting sin in others, just remember that you need to be careful because you have a sin nature still too. But then he says this, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We read that verse, and probably some of you know, bear one another's burdens. You know, when somebody's going through a trial or difficulty, we're supposed to help them and bear their burdens. But in this context, what does it mean to bear their burdens? It means that you go to them when they're caught in sin and you try to help restore them. You try to take them off the wide path to destruction and bring them back to the narrow path that leads to eternal life. And in doing that, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is, right? The, the law to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the loving thing to do, and, and that love is fulfilled when we bear somebody's burdens by addressing their sin and bringing them back to Christ. It's the loving thing to do to address sin. It's the unloving thing to do to allow people to walk in sin and head toward judgment. And then finally this morning, there's a call to conquer. A call to conquer. He says here, in verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, here is a promise of eternal life. This hidden manna is, is a picture of the, the, the bread of life. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats this, they'll never hunger. It's a promise that He will give you something to eat that will forever sustain your life throughout all eternity. He says the one who conquers will, will receive. So Jesus is promising that the person who overcomes the pool of sin and the pool that worldliness has on us will be granted entrance into heaven and will eat the bread of life. Let me ask you as we close this morning, are you overcoming the world or is the world overcoming you? And let me ask this as a church, are we as a church overcoming the world or is the world overcoming this church? Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray as we talk about this very difficult subject 
very, very difficult thing to practice and to carry out. We pray, Lord, that you would help us love you enough to do this. Uh, we, we pray that you would help us not to love our own comfort, our own reputation, but that we would love you enough to do what your word tells us to do. Help us as a church to be faithful to you, Christ. You're the head of, our church, of the church. And so we pray that you'd help us to be faithful. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.